0: Hey, it's Bao and this is Coffee with Bao. This is a series where I chat with cool people who are doing cool stuff in business, music, entertainment, pop culture, and more. And I like to specifically focus on the topics of their creative process, their cultural identity, and personal growth. And since it's one of our early episodes, I'd really love your feedback on what's working and what could use some work. So please leave me a comment or contact me at coffeewithbao.com. Let's meet our guest. Ah, Today I'm hanging out with a fellow Asian American creative and troublemaker. He's an author, musician, podcaster, activist, and entrepreneur. He's published three books, including a new memoir. He's been a speaker at hundreds of events like TEDx and South by Southwest. And he is the winner of a unanimous United States Supreme Court decision on the trademarking of his band name, The Slants. He's an advisor or a board member of dozens of nonprofit organizations, including the Slants Foundation, where I serve on the board. And he is my friend and a man who looks very good in a business suit, Simon Tam. Ah, Simon! <laughs> I, I, I either need like a, a applaud sound or like a laugh track to put on when I introduce my guests.
1: <laughs> you should get both. You know, they do that on Wait Wait Don't Tell Me. <laughs> the podcast. It works very, very well.
0: <laughs> Simon, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I've got my coffee. Uh, what are you drinking over there?
1: This is uh, oolong tea over here. It's very tasty. Uh, I, I feel like the older I get, the more Chinese I get because I had like some wintermelon soup this morning and now I'm drinking oolong tea. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's so cool. Can you tell us where you're dialing in from? Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati! So, uh, beautiful
1: Midwest, aka Rust Belt, but that's a terrible name. But (laughs) Cincinnati is fantastic. I love it. I am uh, new here only been living here
0: a couple months. That's awesome. Um, So like, we met when you were doing the slants. I mean, you're still doing the slants. But we met when you I think you guys were touring. Yeah, a ton of fun.
1: And and there was another band on the bill who was also uh, comprised of Asian Americans. That was a lemon drop kick.
0: That's right, oh, that was really fun, actually. I really like playing with you guys just because you have such a focused purpose and um, are totally professionals and you let loose on stage, which feels really good
1: <laughs> we try we try to make it fun, but uh, you know I've, I've been a bit of a fan of your work as well because I, I I love the like I remember just the visual arts and the story that you brought in into your presence It's awesome. I love it. <laughs>
0: That's so great. So you lived in Portland at that time. You're in Ohio now. You were born and raised in San Diego. Can you give us a little bit of a background on, on your Asian American story? And um, I guess how you guys ended up in San Diego, how you became a restaurant kid?
1: <laughs> sure. So my dad is of Chinese descent. He actually kind of grew up in what's called the Hoi Ping area. And What's interesting about him coming to America was that um, he was not the first of like, his family to come, but his, his grandfather, so my great-grandfather was. And my, my great-grandpa came to the U.S. as part of a, a U.S.-China diplomacy project, but it was kind of during that time period, like the early 1900s, that the U.S. started passing a lot of anti-Chinese laws. That's right. Laws that basically treated us like vermin. And because of those laws, he, he kind of got stuck here for almost 40 years, leaving his wife and leaving his kids in China. By the time he got back to China, he actually got to meet his grandkids, my father included. Oh,
0: that's so I, gnarly.
1: So, I mean, just imagine being separated for that long of a time period. And when he came back, it was what the intention was to bring his wife back. So, my great grandma. Yeah. And they were going to bring my father along. And leave the rest of the family um, in China. Well, after like an arduous two day journey from China to Hong Kong, uh, mostly by foot and and partially by boat, and, and a lot of bribery, forged documents, and other things to get them out of China, uh, they, by the time they got to Hong Kong, the US passed yet another law. And that was basically this idea that grandchildren would not count as members of the family. So Whoa. my dad not go with my. Um, great-grandparents to the United States. But because they kind of had to bribe their way out of China, he couldn't go back to China either. So at 11 years old, he was left to fend for himself in Hong Kong, uh, survived by taking multiple jobs and putting himself through school. And after about six and a half years, my great-grandfather happened to move next door to somebody who would eventually become a US congressman and together, they helped give my dad political asylum. So he was able to get to <laughs> San Diego. But on my mom's side, she uh, she was a teenager. She was 17, uh, turning 18, and she met a U.S. Marine. They fell in love. They got married, moved to San Diego. But after a few years, they, they got divorced. And eventually, she, she met my dad, who was also in San Diego at the time. And so that's how I came to be. And... My dad, his jobs, like his side hustles surviving on the streets of Hong Kong were helping out in wonton restaurants, working on Chinese food. So inevitably, he just started working at restaurants and then opened his own restaurant. And that's kind of how I ended
0: up growing up in restaurants. (laughs) That's such a great story. (laughs) You must be really proud of like how resilient your your ancestors were um, just to do all this. it's incredible, but you know when you
1: hear the f- stories of how families that came to the US and, and, and kind of ended up going into other parts of the world, you realize that it's a very common like trait. It takes a lot to uproot your whole family, move somewhere else for opportunity, uh, especially for that future generation. And I hear the same stories of bravery, and even in families who are trying to travel across the world today. I, I couldn't even imagine it. Uh, to, to be honest with you, like the, the amount of difficulty and just the, the lack of uh, dignity that some people have to endure in that process. Like, I mean, my family alone, like coming across into the U.S., the immigration officials couldn't pronounce our Chinese name properly, uh-huh. like tongue. So they ended up translating it in many different ways. So even though I am TAM, T-A-M, my cousins who came from the same family are Tan. Tan. And I have other family members that are Tong, T-O-N-G, and because wow. they just couldn't figure it out, that inconsistency. And I can't imagine, like, for a culture that's, like, you know, thousands and thousands of years old, in just because of mistranslation, you lose a bit of your family identity and connection because of that. But those are the things you're willing to sacrifice because you want that opportunity for your kids. I'm I'm just, like, amazed. And, and yeah, it's it's a bit humbling to think, like, That's the generation before me. That's what I got to live up to. (laughs) But, you know, it's it's cool.
0: That's super cool. Um, Growing up as an Asian American, people usually like put their kids through formal music training. Did you do any of that? How did you get into music?
1: I credit my aunt and my cousins because they started before us. They started taking piano lessons at age four and five. And when they did that, they were convincing my parents to let me and my sister take music lessons too. Of course, I grew up watching MTV and I was like, whoa, those dudes are shredding on the guitar. I (laughs) want to learn guitar. Like when we went to the music store, I'm like, that's what I want. And they handed me something that was a little smaller and had fewer strings. And I thought it was a guitar, but it turns out it was a ukulele. I didn't know this (laughs) later on. I was like, wait, why does this not sound the same? And so... We took a couple of lessons. It didn't really last that long, but I held on to that thing. And then at age ten, like I begged and begged my parents. I was like, "Hey, if I get all A's, if I if I, if I behave, can I can I take real lessons?" And we went to um, I still remember Garrett Band Instruments. It was right down the street from my parents' restaurant, so it was very convenient for them, and it kept me busy. And I got my bass guitar, and I chose the bass. It had it's the same you. amount of strings. But I also chose it because, uh, you know, also because MTV, I saw Duff McHagan killing it. and I was like, I want that. I want <laughs> That's to That's awesome. That. And so, yeah, I took uh, lessons for three years from this old jazz musician named Nate. And he was amazing. And it was funny because I kept wanting to play rock and roll. I'd be like, I want to play Sweet Child of Mine in Paradise City and all this. And he's like, no, you got to learn the blues. You got to yeah. learn them. He gave me this book, it was like 300 pages long. It was just blues scales. And I was like, oh, this seems boring. But because it was very meticulous about me memorizing those things and understanding music theory, I I really appreciate that now because I see those elements in rock and roll and all these other music genres that I enjoy. And I don't think if I learned all that myself, I I don't think I would appreciate things in the same way. And I probably wouldn't even have like the playing style that I have because of that.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. So most teenagers don't go and start a record label, but you, you somehow went and did that. <laughs> I'm just curious about like, what drove you to kind of do more than most people at that age? I
1: Yeah, I think part of it is because I saw what happened to my parents, with, you know, and how not only my parents, but my aunts and uncles, they had to take initiative to survive to, by starting restaurants because people wouldn't give them jobs or standing ha- starting handyman services or doing all the other things that they had to do they didn't wait for opportunities they made opportunities and when i started playing bass i realized that's what i want like i don't want to sit there and wait for someone yeah i would dream about being on a record label but then i thought well why don't i just make it my own i'll figure it out And I started by taking my dad's hi-fi stereo and making copies of cassettes and releasing (laughs) releases on cassettes. And then when I got into high school, this new technology came out where you can buy your own CD burner. I bought one of the first CD burners available, and I just started making things for for my friends' bands. And then because everyone was just like, I don't know how to get a record out, and I was like, Why don't you just make copies? Why don't you just sell them at shows? And when I realized that like other people, not only did they just not know how, they were afraid of like taking the risk or taking the Uh steps to get there. I was like, I'm just gonna do it for you. So I would go through and figure out and negotiate my own rates for printing companies, like printing my own booklets, stickers, t-shirts and that kind of thing. And I created a catalog of band services and just dropped them off at record stores all around town. Like, hey, if you want to get t shirts made or stickers or, or CDs replicated, you contact me. And so I started doing that for bands around town. Then it was just kind of natural. I just figured, like, okay, those people have shows. How do I get a show? And I figured out how to rent out venues and, and just put on my own show. And I was like, okay, dude. <laughs> like, I just kind of worked backwards. Like, okay, that's what I want. And if I can't get it through someone else, how could I do that for myself? That's kind of how it all started, but I think it was just watching how my parents operated. Like, they didn't—they didn't wait, you know. Like when they were setting up the restaurant, and when when people weren't ser- like selling authentic Chinese ingredients, they just set up relationships with their own international grocery stores, and they figured out how to get their own products in. I was like, why can't I just do the same thing, but for the music side of things, you know? Or just make it happen. And what's the worst that could happen? Like, I just end up with like a bunch of cassettes and CDs. There's nothing wrong with that either.
0: <laughs> that's such a crazy story. Like who does that in their teens? <laughs> it's nuts. can it, it
1: kept me busy. It, like, you know, it's funny, because like, I, I think part of the process is like, I set up one of the first Battle of the Bands concerts at my school. And that's what actually how I learned how to do things like get sponsorships. Like I just rode around on my bike and whatever was within biking distance, I went door to door and I was like, Hey, I'm from this high school. I'm putting on this giant concert. It's going to be the biggest concert our area has ever seen. <laughs> be a part of this." And whenever someone said, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll donate like a free bike helmet or whatever. I, I would put them, I was like, I'm going to have a special page of all the businesses that support this high school and what we're trying to do. And I just kind of went door to door and, I was like oh that was a lot easier than I thought and <laughs> so then, like, when I started a band or when I started whatever project I just kept doing the same thing and realized like if you f- if you show them like why they benefit from participating in whatever you're doing like if you show that you're genuinely wanting to have a partnership people are more often than not willing to work with you especially if it's like a fairly low risk so I just kind of took that model and applied it over and over again throughout my life
0: wow That's super cool. So, The Slants were a pretty big part of your life, I think, Um, not only because they were, you know, a band that you started, a purely Asian-American-focused band, but also because the band name, The Slants, got you into a multi-year court battle that ended up with a unanimous uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision saying that you are, in fact, allowed to trademark The Slants as a way to reclaim a racial slur. Um, so there are literally like thousands of articles about that. So I don't want to like spend too much time on this. I just want to know two things about you as a human going through all of that. And the first one is what was the force that made you want to continue to hang on for what, eight or 10 years, um, of legal stuff? Well, I kind of joke around that, um,
1: I could be very stubborn, (laughs) but I think There there were a couple of factors at play. I mean, like I saw how the law was being used against marginalized communities. I mean, they're stripping people of their dignity. Usually the law was only used against communities of color and members of the LGBTQ community. And I just thought like that shouldn't be acceptable. This is ridiculous. Like why are we letting some government entity decide stuff for our community? That's, That's just not right. And so it was very much about that principle But I know I couldn't have done this without the help of mentors and people who were just so generous and gracious, people who cared about justice and cared about art. And had I not had those people around me speaking wisdom into me and encouragement, I I probably would have dropped it a long time ago.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. That actually relates to my my second question, which is like, how were you sustaining your life as a person during these eight years with, <laughs> in terms of time and money?
1: D- definitely, I had to rely on community. I mean, the, the folks around me were, were so important to me. And the other part of it was, was art. You know, a lot of those articles that you kind of reference, they talk about our, our legal journey and all the obstacles we went through in court. But I think they forget that the point of it all was for us to express ourselves through our music and When I had a chance to do that, when we were on tour, when we were playing shows or working with kids, like doing anti-bullying events or cultural events, that's what kept me alive. That's what reminded me, like, this is why I do what I do. Because I saw the, the impact our music was making on audiences and the impact it was making on me just being able to play and share and express through art. I don't know if I don't think it would have been the same if I was just trying to register a trademark for a business or something like that. Like the art was in of itself like a sustaining force.
0: Wow, that's super cool. So last year you published a new memoir called slanted how an Asian American troublemaker took on the Supreme Court. Can you give us a quick elevator pitch as far as what you were trying to accomplish? I think I was
1: trying to give a real look at what it's like to go to the Supreme Court as um, as a person of color and as a musician. Like you hear about these big court cases going up before the Supreme Court all the time, but most people yeah. only know them by their names, like Roe v. Wade or something like that. They don't really know what it was like for the person and what the system kind of demands of you and what it takes from you as a result. So I wanted to provide a real honest look at, at what it's like, And also to share a bit of stories kind of throughout my life, different moments of how my Asian American identity like shaped who I was and why those stories mattered when it came to the Supreme Court. Because a lot of these cases that go up there are really about things like about dignity, about being recognized by the law. And I think we've We forget that because we're we're too busy looking at constitutional battles or whatnot. Yeah, yeah. But that that story part, I think, is important because it teaches us why we fight for the things we fight for and why those are important.
0: That's so awesome. So Simon Tam's book is called Slanted, How an Asian-American Troublemaker Took on the Supreme Court. And I just want to read you a quote to help illustrate one of the major topics in the book. Dance rock band frontman Simon Tam sought to trademark the slants. His aim was to reappropriate a term long used to disparage a minority group and to render the term a badge of pride. All of us agreed. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And you can find Simon's book at slantedbook.com. Let's take a little break. You want to see our beautiful mugs while we chat? Coffee with Bao is also available in video. Just search for it on YouTube and hit the subscribe button. Let's get back to the show. That's quite a quote to um, <laughs> summarize your like long, decade long court battle. And uh, with Justice Bader Ginsburg's passing, um, it just feels like such a powerful statement. Yeah, I
1: mean, I, I watched a couple of her speeches um, after, after we received our decision and it was amazing like how, she, how often she talked about our case. Like I couldn't believe it, because uh, usually uh, justices will talk about cases made like in the distant past, but she just kept using it as an example of like fighting for your principles, and how some principles, certain certain values, are things that transcend the traditional divide in politics. And so, what a humbling <laughs> experience to have! Yeah, it must be uh, you know this rock star justice do that.
0: Yeah, that's really amazing. The book's been out for a little over a year, and you've been kind of hitting the circuit to talk about that experience and the book. What's been some of the highlights about promoting the book?
1: Uh, Some of the highlights of promoting the book have definitely been connecting with folks who saw themselves in the story in some way. Mm, This year, obviously, haven't been able to do many book events at all. But last year, I was on the road over 200 days going to bookstores, colleges, legal events around the country, sharing stories from it. And there's just been some really incredible moments like meeting Asian American kids who grew up with our story from the time they're in elementary school till they're in high school. Like that's how long our court case lasted. They like grew <laughs> up hearing stories of the band and hearing stories about me. And just being able to meet them in person was just really extraordinary. Also in Washington DC last year, I actually met some of the clerks who clerked under Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who came to our book event and was, and they were sharing like as we are going through our court case, how they're championing our cause and how much it meant for them and how you know, Justice Ginsburg herself was, this is was one, one of those things that she was really proud of the system actually working and it was just cool to hear their perspective of what it was like behind the scenes because I had no idea what was going on as we were arguing and I I didn't know until after the opinion was given that that, you know she supported our cause, but it was really cool to hear that she knew about the band, she knew about the work we were doing and she was like blown away by it. So,
0: I mean... It's remarkable, like totally insane.
1: yeah like <laughs> who would have thought like i was just like the guy who you know dropped out of s- school to play in a punk band would end up being a part of this case and and having a fan at the supreme court
0: yeah i i have a question about that actually like about people's perceptions of you you've been speaking like on, on legal topics and you know y- you're very confident about those topics because you spend a decade however you're not like a lawyer or anything like do you ever feel um that people perceive you in a certain way like do you ever feel imposter syndrome when you're up there oh well i i feel like an imposter all the freaking time
1: <laughs> i figured how could i not I, I think that's just a part of being a human being like yeah i didn't go to law school or anything but i i will say i felt confident because i read every law review article, article yeah. possible on the law like i probably knew more about the law I was fighting against than most law professors or lawyers in this country, which is why I got invited to teach judges and lawyers about this law. But there's still a sense, I'm like, I don't think I belong here. Like, (laughs) why am I being like asked to teach like some federal district judge like on this topic? But it also reminded me that our voices matter, our stories and our experiences matter, that there's something to it that even if you don't know, everything about everything, you still have a stake in it. And if you present it in a way that's deeply personal, and how, like, you know, for me, I I just shared, like, this is what the client perspective is like, this is what it was like for me to fight through this law, that in of itself had value that people needed to hear those stories. And so I just kind of reminded myself, this is what I'm doing, it's important, because I can hopefully show how our laws can inadvertently discriminate against people. And if if I could share that lesson and if people can bend the moral arc of the universe towards justice just a bit more, it's worth enduring the insecurities that I might feel from feeling like I don't belong there. Plus like RBG threw me a, like a shout out. So like I could I could just like hold <laughs> on to that and be like, yo, <laughs> notorious RBG said like what we're doing is important. So I'm gonna believe her. She she's way smarter than me. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. Uh, Most people don't write a memoir until they're a little older. You and I are are very similar in age, I think just one or two years apart. And, you know, with all the COVID stuff happening recently, in a morbid way, I've been thinking more about legacy, not just like for myself, but like people that I know who are like older and stuff. Do you ever think about your legacy like as you were writing this book? I thought about it a lot because like when I was writing it, people were like, you're writing a
1: memoir like is not something you do at the end of your life and I'm like well I don't know like you could kind of share moments from your life throughout it if you want you know several people did like Margaret Cho had this incredible one-woman show and and memoir about her experience so I thought okay this is who I am in this moment it might not be who I am forever But I wanna share these stories while they're fresh, while they're relevant, while people are talking about these issues. So that's kind of why I was doing it. But in terms of like thinking about the legacy, it's changed over the years. Originally, say 10 years ago, the legacy was me starting this band and all the stories written about us in 2010 2009 only had to do with the work that our band was doing like NPR all things considered uh, talked about this band that was flipping stereotypes and this and they're talking about the importance of reappropriation how that practice went on for hundreds of years and how now Asian Americans were engaging in that process but a year later no one was talking about that everyone was talking about the trademark case yeah. and then you know, fast forward a few years later, there were certain people who talked about me as if I was going to be the one who's opening the floodgates for hate speech, and that how I was letting people like Dan Snyder win. I definitely didn't want to be connected with that. And it was like, the person who writes your own story should be you. Like, you, you, yeah, you need absolutely. to embrace that. What matters is what I do with the moments I have now. You know, if, if I could do something that can help impact other people and future generations that's the most important thing. That ultimately is what's going to shape a a legacy, I believe. But I don't do it for the legacy's sake, I do it for like now, like how can I impact more people?
0: So The Slants, you know, obviously led you on this journey of of racial justice and um, recently you've kind of channeled a lot of that activism work into your own nonprofit organization, The Slants Foundation. I think that takes that work to kind of a whole new level as far as organizationally and Grabbing other people to to help you execute and stuff. Can you give us a quick summary of the Slants Foundation and what your your goal is for that?
1: Uh, yeah, I think you know when we first started. I kind of described it as an organization that would provide scholarships and mentoring to artists of color who are engaged in activism. I didn't realize like just by doing that what it meant. Like it meant also like putting a different perspective of approaching the arts and it only kind of became more apparent to me this year as we were seeking grants to re-gift to other artists and as people were talking about the work that we we're doing because the traditional arts grant system it's not very diverse it's not very inclusive like they, talk, they all talk about it it's all in their mission statements right but very few people know how to practice it and so the people that need the funding the most don't get it and on top of that when they do get it They spend more of their time reporting on like meeting grant deliverables than they are creating art and i was Mm, like yeah that shouldn't be what arts funding is about so i thought what if we could change it what if we could make it equitable and make it more about the process and more about the artist than the foundation itself and so it's allowed us to be very very quick to adjust to to needs like when covid hit like launching a new grant within a few weeks because we saw like anti-Asian discrimination on the rise, it's given us the ability to pivot and meet needs in the moment. And I love that. I love like that we don't have to attach ourselves to old systems and processes as a result.
0: Do you have a new update on our last Slants Foundation event to help register voters as far as what numbers we got?
1: I think we're still at uh, just a little bit over 500 people registered to vote for the first time and or get counted for the uh, census. So that was like an event that we put together pretty close to the last minute. But, <laughs> you know, it was really cool. And we got to partner up with Asian Services Ohio and some other organizations to make it happen. I think now that we know we could pull it off with more lead time, we could definitely do a lot more with, with it. And so, you know, that, that's another example of us pivoting like, hey, let's do an event real quick, because we have the census, we have the election coming up. It is so important.
0: Yeah, I think for me, I'm a pretty introverted person and so being able to participate in activism in in the group environment has been really helpful. Um, I just want to let people know that you can find the Slants Foundation at theslants.org and uh, we always need volunteers, we need financial contributions to help us run these programs. Um, yeah. Anything else and, about that? And f- we're
1: promoting a ton of amazing talent, like amazing artists. So like if you just wanna consume some great art, whether it's film, dance or music, like we're very, very lucky to be working with some incredible talent.
0: Yeah, totally. I, I think you have one of the most insane, impressive work ethics of anybody I know, Simon. <laughs> And I, something that a lot of adults who grew up as restaurant kids say is that being in that environment really helped cultivate their work ethic. Do you think that's true in your case? Yeah, I mean, I saw how
1: hard my parents were working. I mean, it was, I think instilled in us because like my my sister's kind of the same way. She she could be a bit of a workaholic, but I think there's, there's that. And I think there's also getting involved with nonprofits at a really young age. Was, was pretty instrumental in terms of like shaping my own work ethic. Cause like I started working for nonprofits at age 15 and it was always this all hands on deck kind of attitude. And that's, in fact, that, I would say that's how I learned a lot of the skills I learned that, that I, I guess in a parallel track to starting my own label or to booking bands or becoming a promoter, it was just like, if you didn't know how to do something, you figured it out because you didn't have the money to hire someone else to do it. Like, yeah. I didn't have money to design a website, so then I figured out HTML coding at the time. You know, I mean, that was like with Angel Fire and GeoCities, you just figured it out. Same thing with, you know, restaurants or nonprofits, it, you just develop the right attitude to approach things. Like a lot of people define entrepreneurship as like someone who starts businesses, someone who who does those things. I always define entrepreneurship as someone who can solve problems. If you see a problem in society and you can solve it and you can monetize it, then you're an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs are are people who kind of help other people realize their full potential.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Through your kind of everyday work, you're, you're kind of always pushing as every time I check in with you, you're working on something. Has there been anything that kind of knocks you off the horse sometimes? And how do you get back on? in terms of being consistent and productive and feeling good about what you're doing? You know, there's no doubt that life comes up.
1: That, like, life is full of challenges and obstacles. Um, Just, like, two, like, a month and a half ago, actually, I don't know if anyone really know this, I didn't really share it with, like, a ton of people, but, like, when we were doing our... National voter registration event like that night. Um, three, three hours before the event, I, I learned my mom had cancer, like at a really advanced stage, that her stomach was full of tumors. And that, that knocked me out. Like, I mean, I, I remember calling um, Joe, a bandmate and uh, vice chair of the Oregon. I was just like, can you do this? I, I don't know if I can do it. I, I don't know if I can host and 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 do this. And I, I just didn't know what to do. But I took a few hours out to just kind of regroup and think like, why am I doing the thing? You know, why am I doing this? It's, it's because I, I want to make an impact on the world. I want to make my parents, including my mom, proud. Um, it just got me to recenter. And I realized that One of the best ways of recentering when uh, when that stuff comes up i think acts of generosity bring us back center like when you focus on other people and how you can benefit them you start thinking less about the problems you're facing yourself and then you realize that those obstacles actually in a way help shape you to become the person you need to be that the story of humankind is a story of, of struggle, and that struggle is what creates endurance, it creates persistence, it forges our values. And so when folks feel difficulty, when they feel like they can't go on, realize that the work that you're doing is important and how it benefits other people, and it's the easiest way to get back on track.
0: Nice, that's amazing advice, and um, I appreciate you kind of just being, um, open about your personal stuff and and sharing those stories, super inspiring I think Um, in addition to your activism work and your public speaking on racial justice I consider you an educator I don't know if you do but (laughs) you're you're a mentor to several musicians including myself and you've written two books on navigating like a DIY music business and you do a daily podcast for diy musicians which blows my mind i'm curious as far as like what drives you to continue to like give your knowledge away like that it's hard work Uh, yeah it's (laughs) but uh why not
1: I, i don't know i just think about like when i was coming up when i was starting my music career i was just like i wish i had this knowledge and so, why not be the the person for other people that I wish I had? It doesn't benefit me to hoard knowledge to myself. <laughs> yeah. like, so why not help other people out and 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 do, give it away as much as possible? I, I figure it'll come around some way, and and in many ways it did. Like you know, I, I published I think about four thousand articles on the music industry now. Uh, about like how to do something, how to like get merch, how to do whatever. Like just tons of articles I've written for Music Think Tank, from uh, for Billboard, for ASCAP. And I've done all those podcasts and everything. And the reward is like not only just helping artists and who you know, because I get to hear these stories of how they apply that knowledge and how it's helped their career, but it's also opened up other opportunities, like being able to share on the TED stage or be a south by southwest mentor or, or whatever like people it's funny because they're always like how did you get those opportunities i'm like i don't know i just kept giving away information and then somebody decided they wanted to pay me to like speak about it so, <laughs> like it worked out but when i was starting up like i needed that i wished for that so i knew i wasn't alone in that feeling so why not provide that for others now
0: that's so cool i appreciate that <laughs> now today as a accomplished, professional. Who are your mentors currently?
1: Oh, I love the writing of Seth Godin. He's an author, probably one of the most prolific authors on marketing. He tells authentic storytelling in a way that I think is really meaningful. He talks about changing the culture. I really love the thinking of Simon Sinek, kind of a self-professed radical optimist. He was probably most popularized because of his TED talk that people call Start With Why, but it's really about leadership, Uh, but he actually has this great new work that he calls the infinite game. And I love it because it reminds people to look at this much bigger picture, like our battles, our successes, they should be defined by that larger picture, not the immediate struggle. So those two guys have been really influential in kind of my my thinking about things, but the list is go, it just goes on. I mean, I, I love reading, I love like devouring information. I, I kind of uh, am of this belief that, like, that we should be more like trees. The thing about trees is that they never stop growing. Like, if you think about it, they just go on and on and on. The the day that a tree stops growing is the day it dies. And when it comes to our leadership, when it comes to artists, or it comes to entrepreneurs, we need to have that same mindset. We need to always be growing and learning and being challenged by things. Or we'll get stagnant and die.
0: I think Coffee with Bao is one of those outlets for me to continue growing. And um, <laughs> like this is awesome to me. This feeds my brain and my heart and all that.
1: Yeah, surrounding yourself with people that you just love speaking with about art. I mean, that's yeah, awesome.
0: Yeah. Personally or professionally, is there anything that you're focused on improving right now? Like leveling up on?
1: Oh, um, Guitar, <laughs> uh, <laughs> really? So, yeah, like, so I pick them. You know, I I, I am a, a self-professed mediocre bass player. I've been playing bass for almost thirty years now, but I've never really like spent a lot of time playing guitar. Like, I was even a guitarist for a band, and I just started collecting them and playing them again. And and if, I'm trying to go back to square one because I was like, I never took lessons. So, how can I develop my technique and how can I apply that knowledge to songwriting and on other instruments. It's kind of funny, it, it's um, when I think about art that I'm not that familiar with, like instruments I don't normally like choose or mediums I don't, that aren't natural to me, it forces me to be more creative. You know, I started thinking about my own work as an artist and activist. And I think about my wife, who's a visual artist. She, she's a painter and how much I actually learn about who I am by seeing her process as a painter. Cause like, I am a terrible visual artist. I could never do oil painting, but I see how she does it. Like she kind of maps out the colors and the shapes and then uh, has a general idea. And then she works out these tiny little details, right? And and I, she used like the world's tiniest brush. I mean, it looks like a toothpick. <laughs> She'll paint like a massive piece of wood just using this tiny little thing and it reminds me that like the canvas of our lives, the art we create is not just these broad, huge strokes, like the big moments of our life. They're actually comprised of really, really tiny moments, tiny, persistent and focused efforts. earlier you asked about legacy and I'm like, well, I don't want to be defined by like just the slants or just the Supreme Court case. Those are the big moments. I want to be defined by those tiny decisions I make day to day. And like whether I chose to advance somebody else's life through an act of generosity. That's how I get to those big moments. Like it's it's making those tiny choices again and again, again.
0: Absolutely. Totally so that really ties in with how i wanted to close this conversation which is um, something i really admire about you is your persistence your discipline um, your consistency in just executing your goals and i wonder if you have a a most important hot tip for me in terms of anything practical that i can do to stay consistent and productive
1: one of my favorite pieces of advice i that I've heard was from a friend of mine. Uh, She's a sci-fi author and also a teacher, Walida Imarasha. She actually has this incredible book about the justice system. But when she talks about her sci-fi work, she kind of speaks of it like this. She's like, uh, a lot of people ask us sci-fi authors how we get to these worlds, how we create these impossible worlds. And she says that that process is the same process one should be using in terms of fighting for justice in our world, which is you begin with the world that you would like to see, and then you work out the steps on how to get there. Instead of beginning with what's possible, like, I can do this, I can't do that, don't don't worry about any of that. Focus on that end goal, what you want to accomplish, then work out the steps to get there. You make that map to get there. And I think when it comes to these big artistic projects, apply that same kind of wisdom. And, and you find that it's a lot easier as a result.
0: Wow, Simon, thank you so much. (laughs) What a valuable and amazing conversation. Um, My guest today has been Simon Tam. He's just uh, got a memoir that he put out last year called Slanted, How an Asian American Troublemaker Took on the Supreme Court. Uh, You can find Simon at his website, simontam.org. That's S-I-M-O-N-T-A-M.org. And find his book at slantedbook.com. Is there anything else you want to leave the audience with while we roll out?
1: Uh, you should definitely subscribe to ba- Coffee with Val because it's awesome. I love the way what you're doing. I mean, I've really been enjoying the conversations. <laughs> so thank you for providing this platform.
0: For, That's for awesome, for sure. Simon. Thank you so much. Simon, hang on for a sec. I'm going to give a little outro and then I'll go back and say a proper goodbye to you. Guys, thank you so much for hanging out with us for Coffee with Bao. If you like this show, please subscribe and leave me some feedback, please, on um, what's working, what's not, what other guests I should have on, etc. Also, if you can financially support me in making all of this content, uh, you can buy me a coffee at coffeewithbao.com. And thank you so much for having Coffee with Bao and Simon. We'll <laughs> see you guys later. Hey friends, not sure if you know this, but I serve on the board of a nonprofit called The Slants Foundation. We're a volunteer-driven organization that provides resources, scholarships, and mentorship to Asian American creatives looking to incorporate activism into their art. We also produce events that feature these talented creators. Our last virtual concert helped over 500 people register to vote for the very first time. You can learn about and support The Slants Foundation by visiting theslants.org. Thanks, and see you soon.